This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from experts across the U.S. Ringler Associates, celebrating 35 years of successfully helping injured people and their families. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, it's no surprise that financial worries abound in today's economy, what with both a stagnant housing and job market. And the recent legislative turmoil on Capitol Hill, complete with a downgrading of U.S. debt by Standard & Poor's, has been frankly unnerving, causing an environment of uncertainty. And it's not only the U.S. economy. For in uh, today's interconnected global village, economies overseas also factor into this complex picture. But what you'll be interested to hear today is that headlines don't often tell the full picture. Our guests today are here to help us navigate through this discussion with an expertise that I trust will give us some better insight and help us separate the perception from the reality. And let me introduce our guests. First is Artivan Mobasheri. Artivan is Chief Economist for AIG Global Economics. He holds a PhD in economics and teaches as adjunct professor of economics and finance at City University of New York. And he's a much sought after speaker, especially in these challenging economic times. So we're fortunate to have him join us today. Welcome, Adivan. Good morning. Thank you very much. Great. Good to be here. Also joining us today is John Gatesman, Senior Vice President, Specialty Markets Group for American General Life. John is responsible for structured settlements and a few other uh, specialty markets, including corporate-owned life insurance for Fortune 1000 companies. He's got over 25 years' experience in the insurance industry and joins us now from beautiful downtown Houston. Welcome, John. Hey, Larry. Great to be here. Terrific. Well, let's get started. Uh, But before we do, uh, how about a bit of a disclaimer uh, that most of you in the audience are already probably aware of, but just to be sure... The comments provided here today are based solely on the opinions of AIG Global Economics and are being provided for general information purposes only, and this discussion does not constitute a solicitation to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And, of course, any opinions here should not be relied upon for investment decisions and may differ from those of other departments or divisions of AIG. So, gentlemen, now that we've satisfied the lawyers, let's get, let's get started. Uh, Both of you keep a close watch on uh, economic indicators, Uh, but today in this consumer-driven economy, isn't it consumer confidence that's really the main issue that we're grappling with here? What's, What's your thought about that? I mean, obviously, uh, uh, the U.S. consumer is a significantly large part of the U.S. economy, uh, something in the order of 70% of GDP can be attributed towards personal consumption, and and, uh, the rest that cannot be somehow, some way, comes back to uh, demand that is 
coming from uh, the consumer, particularly that of the U.S., but increasingly mm-hmm. from other countries as well. And so, obviously, uh, consumer confidence, whether it is related to what their perception is today, what their perception is in the future, uh, what they think of in terms of timeliness of making major purchases, such as autos and, and houses, uh, and where, where they think inflation is headed, obviously, is important and something policymakers keep a close eye on, uh, mindful of the fact that it tends to be uh, very volatile. Uh, it tends to be very much influenced by the media and what people hear, uh, as well as uh, through colleagues and friends and family. Uh, so it's, it's a very volatile uh, series, but one that is obviously uh, key to measuring um, how well people are situated and how willing they are to use their purse uh, to make purchases. Well, you know what's interesting is you would think with housing prices at historic lows, uh, interest rates certainly down in the historic low arena, uh, even automobiles and those other areas you talked about, those other uh, uh, items of big tickets, uh, prices of leases, et cetera, are very low. You would think that it would be a boon to a boom to uh, to consumption and to consumer confidence. But I think what stops consumers, I think what most people believe is what's stopping consumers is the fear of losing their job or not having the job. So so in despite all these great uh, l- low prices and low interest rates, I think the confidence that people lack in that they're going to have a job which enables them to make those payments is what's really stopping the process. Am I wrong? Well, obviously, that's that's uh, that's key. Um, the the biggest driver of, of consumption uh, and consumer behavior in um, in the short to medium run is how confident people are in terms of their security of of the employment or the check that comes uh, to them on a biweekly or, or monthly basis. Um, but you know, to, to looking at the root of of that uh, factor, if you will, um, you know, I, you know, you'd really have to attribute the the biggest factor here to uncertainty, um, and obviously, uncertainty about their employment is key. But you know, uh, I'm really talking about more of an economy wide uncertainty because it's not just the consumer, but it's also the businesses that actually hire the consumer. Um, as well as the from the government side, government uncertainty of the government about what is happening or what their role is going to be or should be. So there's a general level of uncertainty uh, on the economy out there, and and really, it's attributable to 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 really two factors here. Um, one is the uh, outcome from the recession of 2008 and 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that that has led the economy, particularly the banking sector and the U.S. consumer to do, is to begin this process of deleveraging. Uh, initially, it was thought that the deleveraging is a normal cyclical deleveraging that we see through any recession, particularly on the consumer level, mm-hmm. but it's turned out to be something bigger, whether it's a secular deleveraging uh, that takes many, many years, if not a decade or so, uh, is yet to be seen. However, we are, it seems as if the data is showing that we are in a larger and longer than a cyclical deleveraging of the consumer's balance sheet 
and the banking's balance sheet. Well, let's 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 explain for our for our listener what you mean when you say deleveraging. Are you talking about you know putting down more capital and 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 less? Uh, Basically, from a banking perspective, less loans per capital that you have. And from a consumer's perspective, a smaller uh, uh, liability profile, meaning uh, paying down your credit cards, your student loans, your auto loans. It's a lot more difficult to pay down a mortgage loan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what you can to bring them down as much as possible to bring them to more manageable levels, um, as opposed to four or five years ago when you were at the peak of of leverage. Right. And and for for a consumer out there who who knows... Buying about buying a home, it would mean putting more down as a down payment on a home, let's say, than than, than that's, financing. That's correct. John, let's talk a little bit about your perspective here. How have you seen the economy impact the markets that you're dealing with every day? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's a couple different things that I think that are maybe working at odds <laughs> uh, against each other here. We've got. And I think we've seen this in, in some of the studies. Um, you know, there's certainly concern about financial security, and and as Artivan just described, tremendous amount of uncertainty in the marketplace. But at the same time, um, people are looking for ways to, you know, you know, create security, and whether that's through retirement or through some other some other way. Um, the challenge we have is, uh, again, I think the uncertainty to some extent is leading to indecision mm-hmm. on, on people's parts. And, you know, we've got we've, in, in the marketplace and I guess a direct impact that we see from a product standpoint is you know, that uncertainty has led to, you know, lower interest rates, which, you know, uh, affects, you know, the amount of interest we can credit to the products that we offer and sell mm-hmm. makes them maybe appear less attractive from an investment standpoint. So while people, you know, are are seeking that financial security, you know, we're not necessarily able to offer them, you know, those types of products that they really need to provide that financial security at rates that they might view as as attractive. So so it's it's something that we've, you know, continued to deal with um, and, um, you know, continue to tell that story about, you know, the financial security aspects aspects of of what our products can do, you know, yeah, locking no, in that, that income. No question about that, John. Yeah. And we deal yeah. with it every day with the annuity products and, uh, you know, having to lock in at fairly low yields. And it's a challenge for all of us in the industry to uh, work through these times. And I'm sure uh, we're going to talk about that even further along as we go uh, here in this discussion. Okay. Ardovan, you, you wrote recently uh, that many of the negative factors that have been impacting the economy are basically behind us. Uh, you mentioned some weather issues, earthquakes. Why don't you talk about that and, and tell us what you really mean by how the how those bigger impact items uh, that have been affecting the economy may be uh, in the background? Sure. Uh, the you know, the as everyone knows and and um, uh, it's caught a lot of attention um, recently. Um, but as it turns out, uh, through a variety of uh, revisions that um, the government. Um, uh, provides us uh, in terms of in terms of the quality of the data, we've realized um, through the latest releases of of some of the growth numbers that uh, not only was the recession uh, uh, deeper than we had initially anticipated with the data that was given or provided up until uh, last year, but that the first half recovery 
uh, or first half growth, I should say, uh, in the economy was also weaker than we had anticipated. In fact, I think the biggest surprise contributing to the recent market volatility, I think, had been that uh, surprise in terms of where the economy is versus what we had thought it was. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest cause uh, mm-hmm. cause uh, for the uh, volatility rather than some of the other events that people attribute it to. Um, but when you actually look deeper into the numbers, first half U.S. GDP uh, was very, very weak, sub-1%, mm-hmm. uh, significantly weaker than the growth rates that we are used to seeing post-recoveries, uh, post-recessions uh, during the initial stages of recovery. Um, but when you, when you look at the data, you know, the first half, particularly the first quarter weakness, um, was attributable partly to, uh, as you said, uh, we had some significantly um, bad weather in the Northeast uh, and parts of the Midwest during the months of January and February. And, and people don't realize it, but the inability to, uh, for many hourly wage earners to get to work, the inability of, of uh, transportation equipment to function properly um, during bad weather does actually slow down the pace of economic activity. And um, I think part of the reason why the numbers were so weak uh, had to do with the unusually uh, weak weather or bad weather that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, another factor that we had initially thought would uh, have a minor impact, uh, uh, but as it turns out, the effect on the supply chain disruption was significant, was the uh, earthquake in Japan. Um, uh, that had a significantly negative effect on the supply of autos and auto parts mm-hmm. to the Japanese manufacturers located in the southeast part of the United States. Uh, and so that had a, a negative effect as well. Um, and the other factor that uh, had an impact on the growth numbers was the very high level of food and energy prices on a relative basis at least, um, in the first quarter relative to the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of the pro- of, uh, of last year as well on a year-over-year basis. Um, and people don't realize initially how much, but the higher food and energy prices really do tax incomes uh, and tax incomes heavily in the short run. Mm-hmm. Significant part of the U.S. population uh, lives uh, checkbook by checkbook, and and if you have to pay an extra twenty five, thirty, forty dollars a month for your commute to work uh, and food prices, that puts a dent of of as much as fifty, sixty, seventy, even a hundred dollars on uh, your activities elsewhere, whether it's at the mall or mm-hmm. whether it's the restaurant or somewhere else. No question. Um, and that does have an effect on the economy. No, you, um, you just described me. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> So you have three factors, uh, bad weather, uh, the earthquake, and and higher energy and food prices in the first half that do not exist, for the most part, do not exist today. We do not have, we have significantly lower energy and food prices, though they're still elevated, but much, uh, at a much better uh, level than they were in the first half. The weather factor is gone, Mm -hmm. um, and the Japanese earthquake supply chain disruptions have more or less worked themselves out. So I think in terms of the second half growth numbers, we could probably we are going to see a bounce though, and a healthy bounce though. The actual uh, rate may not satisfy uh, many, including the policymakers in Washington. But I think the second half numbers will turn out to be much better than the first well, that, half. Well, that optimistic out- outlook on your part is uh, encouraging, and we'll get into that even a little bit later here today in the show. But. Uh, let me talk to you about something uh, that we've all heard about called the lag effect. Uh, there's a lag effect of any stimulus program. And uh, I guess historically, how long after 
the first traces of a positive economic breeze does it take for us to turn this big economic clippership of ours? And uh, in addition to talking about that, I, how did you like my metaphor? <laughs> Well, usually, um, if, if I understand your qu- question correctly, usually, uh, historically, um, we've had uh, government stimulus stepping in for, as a smoothing factor, uh, if you will, or, um, uh, to smooth out the uh, negative effects of a recession, uh, make it a bit more bearable, if you will, and, and have the troughs or the peaks and uh, unemployment troughs and economic activity a bit uh, better than they would have been otherwise. But some people's and, expectations are that when you have a, a congressional action or some, some stimulus package or something that gets put into place that things are going to get better right away and there there is a lag. There, no, there is a lag. There is a lagged variable uh, factor, uh, uh, obviously. And, and it's usually, uh, historically, uh, we've seen that lagged effect uh, anywhere between 12 months to as much as 24 months, mm-hmm. which basically means that uh, if we should have already seen the um, uh, the stimulus uh, of of 2009 having worked itself through the system. Um, and I actually believe that it actually did, and and to a great degree, it actually did what it was meant to do, which was to prevent the economy from getting any worse than it was, mm-hmm. uh, preventing unemployment rate from rising significantly higher than 10%, and for economic activity to shrink any more than it did. Um, unfortunately, what has happened is historically, the government stimulus was meant to be a short-term phase where the government would step in when the private sector has stepped away, and when the private sector is healthy enough to step in, uh, that the government could then step away. What has happened this time around, unfortunately, and again, this goes back to the deleveraging Mm -hmm. cycle that we spoke about, unlike prior cycles, this cycle is a banking and consumer uh, recession that we had. Mm-hmm. And it's not the a manufacturing-led, let's say, slowdown where once the manufacturers have more or less exhausted all the overdoing that they did during the prior cycle, they would come back and banks would be ready to lend to them. This time around, it was a banking crisis, and 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 the banks are not not yet ready to lend money, gotcha. and not ready to let the leveraging factor work itself way out. In addition, the ultimate buyer of all the products that we consume, the consumer, is yet to come back from a deleveraging phase and begin to borrow uh, and to spend again. And so the, the effect of the stimulus and, and the handoff to the private sector is taking much longer, partly because the private sector, especially the banking and consumer, are a lot weaker than they coming out than they right. were in the prior cycles. Right. And another thing that's got a lot of folks worried out there that exacerbates all this is the gyrating stock market, uh, mm-hmm. the volatility in the market. And, you know, a lot of people watch it. They, they hear the numbers day to day. They may not be following all the economic indicators. Uh, I'm talking about the general public, but they certainly get the feeling that there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion uh, that's going on out there. And it scares them. So uh, how does the stock market gyration Enter into your thinking. And, well, and it, it, you know, it's um, it, it does though. Uh, you know, um, it does from a uh, influential point of how much it actually affects consumer spending. 
Um, obviously, the fact that you know um, the the age of information age has allowed everyone to be able to log in at any minute of the day and to be able to see what the stock market is. The fact that they can get their 401k statements basically once a month or once a week in some cases to see where their uh, 401ks how for their or their 401ks are doing obviously influences their thinking and and the, the number shows up in consumer confidence figures. Um, and so it is beginning to play or it has been playing a significant role. And of course, you know, uh, the other factor this time around, again, talk about all the factors that are hitting the bottom line of the ultimate buyer of, of stuff that we make right. is the housing market. And everybody knows, you know, for the most part that home prices continue to drop in their localities. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make them feel good when they get on the car to drive to their train station or to drive to work and they pass by five or six or seven, if not more signs of houses for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that you know this is more and more supply coming into the market, pressuring their prices in their in their community. Um, so it's it's all these factors that are that are uh, impacting. But I just wanted to point out that one other factor that's leading to the volatility in the stock market, and to some extent, is delaying the economic recovery. Is you know unlike the prior uh, cycles since World War II, the size of the U.S. economy. Uh, relative to the rest of the world uh, as a percentage of the global GDP is at its lowest level since we started collecting data. Um, The fact of the matter is that the rest of the world uh, is catching up, especially Asia, and catching up very quickly. And they are increasingly playing a bigger role in the global growth, global demand for goods and services, global demand for commodities, and increasingly what could be driving economic growth globally is and are factors that are outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. And hence, unlike prior cycles, when you came out of a recession and the banks were willing to lend you money and you simply had to think of, okay, should I expand my facility in Cleveland or build a new one in South Dakota or build more, do more marketing in California versus Texas, say, this time around, a lot of businesses are thinking, should I expand my facility in Cleveland or should I expand my facility in China or Indonesia or elsewhere? Uh, and hence, delaying the ultimate recovery in the United States because much of global economic activity is occurring outside of the United no, States. No question. And I think this the concept of building the plant in South Dakota, uh, I think most people think of South Korea. So South Korea, there you go. You're, you're, you've got... Um, You've got all those factors. So, so overall, essentially a gloomy picture. But you're at, you're actually thinking in some of the writings you've done that we're going to see a uh, a rather healthy bounce in consumer spending as we move towards the end of this year. Is that uh, is that right? Well, I think the the. Um so I, I do think that we're going to have stronger growth uh, by the end of this year than, than we had in the first half. But mm-hmm. I also think that um, 2012 and, and 2013 numbers could actually surprise people to the upside. And we could have a better employment picture a year from today than people think. And growth numbers will be better um, a year from today, and if not two years from today. And I think uh, – and, and it goes back to and my my theory and, and, and um, my work is, is actually showing me that it goes back to what I, what I, the exact point that I just made a few minutes ago, and, and that is, you know, this transition 
that is occurring um, in terms of global economic activity, and for, for that matter, transition in global economic leadership, for that matter, from the mm-hmm. North Atlantic economies uh, to the Asia-Pacific economies, um, and the fact that right now we have an interesting dichotomy where the North Atlantic economies are sitting with too much capacity, mm-hmm. too much empty office and factories, and too many people unemployed. And the exact opposite exists in Asia, where they have too little factories and office spaces and, and, and almost full employment uh, in many of those co- countries, meaning that they're fully utilizing all of their resources. Uh, and as of the moment, that's the region of the world with the wealth, with the clout, with the reserves, and with the money to make investments, except it takes time for investments to come into place. It takes time before factories are fully functional. It takes time before cities build their commercial office space for people to be able to work there. In the meantime, and in in this meantime that I'm talking about is something anywhere between three and 10 years, these emerging market economies, these growth economies, as we call them, where the wealth resides and the growth resides, will need to satisfy their demand for goods and services through imports. And so we're going, we're gradually transitioning from what used to be exporters gradually becoming importers and what used to be importers gradually becoming exporters. Well, it certainly, it certainly might help our trade imbalance because it, right now it, it's, it's, it's it's horrible. Well, it's it's going to be a significant boost to trade. In fact, I think um, exports have the ability, the capacity to double in the next five to seven years and quadruple in the next 10 to 15 years. And, and if that does happen, U.S. economy basically becomes Japan. Japan's exports as a percent of GDP today are about 20%. Our exports as a percent of GDP are about 12%. And I think if those numbers that I mentioned in terms mm-hmm. of the growth occur, exports could be as much as 18 19% of GDP by the end of this decade. That basically makes the U.S. Uh, on par with Japan in terms of how much exports influence economics and economic policymaking. And the good <laughs> news is that when it comes to the exports, when it comes to the demand for goods and services from the Asian and Latin American and, and the newer growth economies, we are in a better position than our trading partners in the North Atlantic, Canada, Germany, and elsewhere to be able to provide what they need. We are in a far better situation than they are. Well, you know, on that optimistic note, we're going to take a break, a short break right now, and then we're going to get back to all this. But uh, I want to give our folks a chance to uh, hear a few words from uh, some of our sponsors. So let's take a quick break right now. We'll be right back with our guests right here on Ringo Radio. See you soon. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for 35 years. Ringler Radio is celebrating its sixth year right here on the Legal Talk Network, produced by broadcast professionals. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Since 1975, Wrangler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in the settling of physical injury claims. Experience counts. Over $23 billion in structures benefiting 166,000 injured individuals and their families. And one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. We invite you to listen to other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? 
I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. With over 60 offices nationwide, there's a Ringler consultant near you. Go to our website at RinglerAssociates.com and find the local consultant in your area. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. Uh, again, my special guests are Ardovan Mobashari, Chief Economist for AIG Global Economics, and John Gatesman, Senior VP, Special Markets Group at American General Life. And uh, we're talking about perception versus reality in the, in the American economy today. And, uh, you know, a lot of you out there are concerned about where this economy is. And, John, you know, we all know that when people, and especially in our business, when, when we're dealing with claimants who are get, coming into large settlement funds and settlement dollars, uh, they need to be able to do something with those dollars to protect them. Uh, and, and sometimes, as you mentioned before, with, with interest rates being where they are, uh, certain people get their ear about not maybe locking into an annuity now or doing something else. But uh, how should these how should these people be looking at these settlement funds that are sitting in their hands before they get there? That's a that's a great question, Larry. I mean, you know, I think this uncertainty is has has created or certainly caused folks to to be really concerned about, you know, locking up that, that money and, and interest rates aside. And, and I think, you know, folks really need to take a longer term view, um, and really deal with the, you know, that financial security issue in question, you know, that we, we discussed earlier, Uh um, you know, by utilizing, you know, these payout annuities, these types of products and, and, and the, tax benefits that they provide you know it it really gives them a great way to to really put aside and and put their mind at ease regarding you know their financial situation i mean if some of these dollars are being used to to replace you know income that has been lost um that can you know help pay for you know some of the you know basic necessities that they have mm-hmm. um you know what? You know what? A great way. You know, it's just a, a great way. You know, to accomplish that, and 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 hopefully use you know other funds for you know for other discretionary purposes. So it, it's mostly about taking that longer term view, and 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 thinking about you know not just today and maybe not maybe not the next year or two as we try to get out of. Um, you know the the situation we're in from an economic standpoint, but you know, you know, what are your needs for your family, you and your family, uh, you know, in the long term? No question about that, John. Just uh, as, as little as last week, uh, I was talking to a, a, a claimant and really explaining that you want to have the safety of this annuity so that you don't dissipate these funds because. Uh, I don't care where you think you're going to get a better return. If the money is sitting in the bank somewhere in some account and it's accessible, uh, human nature is that that's going to get uh, eaten into. And before you know it, it doesn't matter what the rate of return is when the principal's gone. So uh, exactly right. So the temptation is can be too pretty much. Uh, 
pretty hard to, to, to resist. <laughs> no, no question about it. We see it every day. Yep. Well, Artivan, let's uh, finally, let me, let me talk to you a little bit about uh, a couple of things. One is uh, a lot of the people in America, we hear about this problem over in Greece and how this, uh, the Greek economy and what's happening there is affecting uh, Europe and, and then tangentially also us here. Give us a little bit of insight into why Americans are, should be concerned about what's happening over there. Well, obviously, um, uh, whether it's Greece and Ireland or, or Portugal and, sure. um, and and some of the other countries and and um, these mostly developed economies, um, and we shouldn't exclude ourselves, mm-hmm. um, is that you know we've for the last uh, one could even go as far back as uh, forty or fifty years, uh, we've simply spent too much and um, and uh, we've financed that spending through borrowing mm-hmm. and. Um, for the at at some point the story comes to an end when when you when you get into a pattern like that and uh what we don't know as economists is when when the tipping point is uh that happens it, it could last much longer than we think um and it could last and it could happen much faster than we think um depending on the importance of the economy obviously and depending on the strength of the economy and you know what's what's happening in Europe is that um that reckoning day has arrived for the weaker economies such as Greece Portugal and Ireland and um they are you know they are dealing with how to resolve this situation without further impeding um their growth prospects and their membership in the European Union mm. And I, I think the, the the fear of default is uh, got everybody up, you know, scurrying around trying to figure out how to prop that up. Uh, that's a tough that's a tough job for uh, some of these other member states in the in the euro uh, community, and uh, it's causing I know a lot of concern. Well, one one thing that that people have to um, be mindful of, and and um, it's difficult when you know it hits the headlines every day, and it's difficult when financial markets are so volatile um, and so short term in their perspective and thinking. Um, but you know, um, as far as you know, investors or or or, uh, or us and or other individuals, and really, you know, we if you if you look at it from a longer term perspective. Um, and, and if you look at the European experiment, as I call it, uh, that's been going on for the last 50 some odd years, this is just one stage in the maturing process um, of the European Union. Um, we went through many situations like this ourselves in the early decades of our experiments um, uh, 200 years ago. You know, the difference is probably we didn't have we didn't have uh, mass media and 24-hour coverage, and uh, people weren't looking over our shoulders at every moment and reporting on it. I think that's that ability to do this with a little less scrutiny uh, every day is, I think, was helpful back to us then, but uh, may not be so helpful now. It's you know, it's the media, it's the it's the information revolution effect. Obviously, that's that's uh, both exacerbating things more than it should, but uh, uh, in a negative way. But in some ways, it is bringing forward um, uh, tough, difficult decisions that otherwise would have been delayed. And let me let me finalize the, this show with one final question, and that is about how politics and in, enter into all of this. Uh, you know, there are a lot of voices out there, and uh, for some people, having things go bad is, is not seen as being something so bad for them because it allows them to maybe get back into power in certain political tugs and pulls. Uh, what do you think this whole legislative uh, scenario is in America and, and how President Obama is going to try to deal with that 
in the next 14 months because, you know, we have an election coming up and oftentimes these economic decisions, uh, whether it's creating jobs or making at least the economy appear to be more growth oriented is helpful to one party or another. How is all that going to impact and what is your own perspective on uh, where we're headed before that election? Well, um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, the, the president's um, uh, term in office is, is now well after, well beyond its first uh, half, and he's got re-election coming next year. And, and um, uh, you know, it's obvious that uh, re-election for him uh, means that the economy has to be significantly better than where it is right now, and in particular, unemployment needs to be lower. Um, the flip side is, you know, from the GOP's perspective, um, you know, that good news for the president would be bad news for their candidates, and hence, um, uh, you know, the, the reverse is probably in in, in their benefit. And um, you so, know, where do you think we're going? Do you, do you think do you think we're, we're we have the ability to uh, overcome those partisan issues and and try to move this economy forward, or do you think we're going to find those that petty partisanship kind of stymieing us uh, for the next 14 months? I, you know, I, I think the, the, the big risk is, is the latter. Um, you know, one thing that is lost on um, both parties, on, on both ends of the political spectrum, um, is the fact that, you know, when you, when you think about it, um, you know, and this is an economist speaking, obviously, in, 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 on, a, on a political uh, topic, but, you know, the the founding fathers and their decision to create a, an executive branch and then a congressional branch and, and one and a congressional branch where uh, one uh, you had the House of Representatives and, and the Senate was meant to uh, in effect create an environment where not any one particular individual or one particular entity or one particular party had the ability to, to dictate uh, to the other what they what they wanted. Um, otherwise, we would have had a parliamentary democracy um, as, as we do in Europe. And so, what what really is lost is the fact that when either party um, comes to power, uh, we saw this in 2008 with with the president's election, and then we saw it last November when when the um, uh, when the Republicans took over the House. Uh, is the 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 treatment that they um, find themselves, in, in other words, they find themselves being elected with a mandate. Um, and they stick with that mandate, whereas the reality is that when you come in to Washington, you have to live within the system of Washington, which means not every candidate, not every political movement will have the power to accomplish what they want. But they yet they come in believing that they have a mandate right. uh, to do what they had said they were going to do. And, and so that prevents people from coming closer. Um, it causes them to go farther. Well, it must it must frustrate you as an economist to have this equal opportunity roadblocking by whichever side gets in. Uh, the other side is trying to to do some roadblocking to try to get gain the upper hand politically. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the economic gain or the potential for growth and, and recovery, uh, to a great extent, I'm sure as an economist, you you could think of a lot of things that we could be doing that maybe politically are not as uh, feasible. You could, and 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 you know, you have some proposals on on both sides that are probably good and worthwhile if 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 the other side would agree to sit down and and uh, and agree to something and and move forward with it. Um, the flip side is, uh, admittedly, 
um, you know, we had uh, divided government between 1994 and 2000, um, and one, some would argue, and justifiably so, and the data is there, that showed that that divided government prevented either side from accomplishing much, and the economy did what it was going to do anyways. And uh, by the end of the Bill Clinton's second term, we were in awfully good shape. Yeah. Well, so I, you know, both sides. You know, yes, you want them to accomplish things. Yes, yes, yes you want both to um, to converge and, and get things done faster, quicker, um, and allow some of the policies on both sides to get through. Uh, the flip side is, you know, history also tells us that it could be the reverse uh, if they don't. You know, no question. <laughs> well, listen, I think it's uh, we've had a tremendous discussion here, and I, and I want to thank both of you. I I think I come away from this. I hope our audience does as well. With uh, there are problems, and there are a lot. You know, I thought it was quite interesting the way you talked about the European uh, transition right now as being akin to what we went through some time back. And I sense an optimism in 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 your analysis that sees the future a little bit more brightly than than some other folks may. And uh, I think that's uh, that's a plus. I think that's a good thing for us to hear and and move forward because, as John, as you said. Uh, it's this confidence that needs to return to the uh, to the consumer, and this feeling of uh, less uncertainty that's going to maybe drive a lot of the products you sell and a lot of the products we sell, and and just generally have the economy improve. Yeah, that's right, no question. So, Ardavan, if someone wanted to reach you, uh, how would they go about doing that? I think the best way is probably uh, by email, uh, and my email is uh, Ardavan A R D A V A N dot mobasheri m o b a s h e r i at a i g dot com. That's great. That's great. And John, how would they reach you? Uh, the same way. Uh, emails best. Uh, John dot Gatesman at aglife dot com. Great. You know, sometimes we do have people in the audience wanting to to clarify some things with uh, some of our speakers and some of our uh, our guests. So. Uh, you may hear from them, and uh, it'll be great because then you can clear up uh, any issues that uh, they may have. If anyone wants to reach any Ringler Associate, they can certainly do that on ringlerassociates.com. Uh, we've just uh, revamped the entire website. I think you'll find it quite fascinating if you go there now. Uh, it's a, I think it's a lot better than it used to be, so uh, that's probably a plug for it. And uh, all the Ringler Radio shows, including this one, Ringler Radio can be reached on ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. And uh, if you go there, you can download it, you can put it into your iPod, you can listen on your uh, headphones as you uh, jog in the morning, and you can hear Ardavan's, I think, rather optimistic outlook on the economic uh, future of America. And I think that's a good thing. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, take care now. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio in its sixth year on Legal Talk Network with over a half a million listeners. Ringler Associates, where experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in physical injury claims. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, 
New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. 